Start clean with Clorox because Clorox delivers a powerful clean every time. Because messes happen. Because... Yeah. The charcoal mask. Great, because why would I put that on my face when I could drop it in my sink? This is what I get for multitasking. Ugh, why is charcoal so sticky? Uh-oh. Hello? Hey, Janice. I am so sorry. I thought I was on mute. <laughs> no, we don't need to reschedule. I'll just stay off camera. Ooh, yeah, that happens. So start clean with Clorox. Use Clorox products as directed. Sometimes it takes a different approach to help you unlock your true potential. With Capella University's game-changing FlexPath learning format, you gain relevant skills you can apply to your career right away. Earn your degree from an accredited university and be confident in the quality of your education. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Capella University is accredited by the Higher Learning Commission. Learn more at capella.edu slash accreditation. This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show. Today on the James Altucher Show. All my favorite topics combined in one podcast with Angela Duckworth. We're going to talk, how do you find your passion? How do you get persistent? How do you learn fast? What's the deal with the 10,000 hour rule? And and why do I now believe in the 10,000 experiment rule? And a lot more. So listen to the continuation of my conversation with Angela Duckworth, author of Grit. What, the, what does he think? What does he think is he going on? He thinks you're right in the short term but that you may not be right in the medium and long term. He said in the short term, yeah, cities are going to have huge problems and there's going to be exodus. But uh, he said the, the fundamental nature of cities is that they are work, they're labor markets and that uh, people tend to be uh, more productive and more creative when they're together than when they're just like all over the place. So he does not think that the future of uh, the world and like the economy and the way we work is going to be that like everybody's in their kitchen, like wearing pajamas. I a hundred percent agree with him, which is that, you know, if you look at every great art movement, every great literary movement, even every great tech movement, they all started in cities. And so ideas combine and people network and all sorts of magical things happen in a city. And I guess when I think about it, you know, the short term is where I get worried that there's no solutions. Yeah. And if I can't think of like solutions, then what happens next? I know. Like, it's like, how do you get from the short term to the medium term? Right? Like if that's the short term, then what, like what happens? Yeah. Like in the article you sent me, the guy, I point out, the guy said, well, in 10 years, you know, it should get better. What happens magically in those 10 years? Like I don't, and 10 right. years feels like a long time. Like you may have a million people unemployed in in next year in New York City, and who's going to trust it again? Like it could be the case that cities that once were no longer are, and so the next big city becomes Nashville or, God forbid, right. Philadelphia or something <laughs> <God> like that. <laughs> hey, we're due for a comeback. It's been about like four hundred years. Since yeah, Philadelphia. Like, like Philadelphia is a great example of hip. the city that once was. <laughs> yeah, but. Um, Hey, America likes nothing more than a comeback. But I think your point is right. Maybe we need, remember that scene in Sleeping Beauty when uh, the three fairies uh, know that like it's going to be a hundred years before the princess is going to wake up. So she just puts, they put them all to sleep. Do you not remember this? They I don't go, remember. Was that sprinkle, like in the real life? They really? sprinkle magic fairy dust on the whole town and, you know, like everyone just falls asleep for a hundred years. Was it a Disney version or was it the… the that was the, a Disney version. 
that oh, was not I didn't like remember the uh, that. original, like, you know. Right, that uh, Grimm's, Grimm's fairy tale. Yeah, probably in the Grimm's <laughs> oh, fairy tale. I remember Everybody that. Goes into a I didn't remember that too. I always kind of wished something like that would happen, particularly when I was more of a stock market investor. It's like, okay, I know these companies are good, but I can't stand waiting and the daily ups and downs. Just put me to sleep for a year and, and then hopefully wake you they'll be up when I wake up. Of course, yeah, none of those like stocks that. were up a year later, but that's okay. <laughs> um, is that how you self-identify as an investor? No. Uh, I did like in maybe 2000 or 2004, but now more writer, podcaster, maybe okay. entrepreneur, maybe and com- comedian. Uh, yeah, comedian. comedian. Oh, Performing tonight. Comedian. Oh, yeah, that's right. Okay. Uh, yeah, and... Um, I don't know. I just posted again about solutions for cities and just everybody is, everybody just trashes me everywhere. Every time I do this. What did you but post? I posted this idea that maybe you can create a negative sales tax. So this is, this is reduces the, the addiction to Amazon. So if you have a negative sales tax, if I buy local, then I get some sort of credits or something that could be only redeemed locally, or I can wait 10 years and I can redeem them in dollars. So there's as much incentive as possible to do as many transactions locally to get this negative sales tax, which is first in the form of, you know, credits you could use as currency only locally. And then only 10 years later, you can convert them into dollars. So there's incentive for people to come to the city and transact. There's incentive for people to you know, who live in the city to buy in the city. There's incentive for businesses to start up again because everybody else has these incentives to use your store and so on. And this is like the opposite of the Euro, right? It's like you want to go to like local currency away from kind of like frictionless transactions wherever you are. Yeah. Um, yeah, boundaryless. Yeah, it's interesting because, uh, you know, globalism was such a huge trend for the world and still is for the world in general. Yeah. But at the moment, local economies are having incredible problems. So if you went totally globalist with, oh, Amazon is your one-stop shop for everything and you never have to think of your local community, I I think we all got a lot more aware of how important, let's say, local politics and local decision-making was this year. I've never thought about who, I barely even knew who the mayor of New York was. Yeah, like who's your (laughs) state senator? Nobody knows. Who's your city council person? But that's become an issue now because if your store is closed and you're about to go out of business and there's vandalism and this and that. You go to your city council person. You have to find out who that is. And I think local in general has become more important, but also more in trouble than anything else. Yeah, I just worry, like, if there's no precedent for that globally, which I don't know that there is, it just makes me wonder whether there's some reason why it's not viable. I don't know. It does feel like building a sandcastle and, like, trying to make a really great wall. But the ocean's going to come in, right? Yeah. And then, you know, there's water everywhere. Well, here's, here's another interesting issue. Like, let's say climate change, let's say just getting past all the arguments about the science. Let's just say we want a better climate. All the things people are worried about, who cares? Let's just make them better regardless of what they are. There's two ways to do it. One is to stop everything that's causing a bad climate or to do nothing and assume that technological trends will continue, like solar power will, mm. you know, quadruple in efficiency every two years and uh, you know, nuclear fusion will get cleaner and cleaner and faster and faster. Uh, lithium ion batteries will continue to generate double the mileage every two years. You know, all these sort of Moore's law industries yeah. will ha- happen and just naturally climate change 
will end. There'll be no more carbon emissions because just technology evolves instead of spending $60 trillion on a Green New Deal. And so it's just one of those things. There's no precedent for it, but there is precedent that technology Mm. evolves and technologies are the water and you can't damn them with policy is, is the point. Wait, but are you are you arguing for like a passive kind of like let's just let the uh, laissez-faire you know like let the, let the forces like take care of it? You're not right. I think you're arguing the opposite. Well, no, I'm saying in general that's not a good argument, but in this case it probably is because all the technologies that are uh, or not all of them, but some of the renewable energy technologies that are exponentially increasing are the exact ones you would want. Yeah, yeah, you would want to be big industries to solve the carbon emissions problem. And so for people without grit, say, for people with like kind of a a fixed (laughs) mindset of, or or maybe a a scarcity mindset of what happens in the world, they want to say, okay, no, we need to spend $60 trillion because that's what it's going to cost to develop solar power and and shut down the oil drilling and, and all these things. Or you could do nothing, but we know these technologies are happening. I have an abundance mindset that, uh, that solar power and wind and batteries are going to continue to double every so often. And that will naturally solve things without spending an additional dime and it'll create whole new industries at the same time. Mm, interesting. Well, I would definitely not be the social scientist to um, weigh in on such questions because it's not my training. And it's actually just it's like, it's like I, I can only understand it in like the most abstract terms. I'm like, oh yeah, that's a good question, James. So I'll refrain from saying anything. And to your point, look at election night, everybody I knew, they were like single-handedly manning a campaign. Like people were calling each other up, like here's the latest data I have. It was like there were a combination newsroom political campaign in every single house. Yeah, everybody, individually. Yeah, everybody's texting and talking to each other. Well, oh, this county in Pennsylvania (laughs) hasn't counted all the votes yet, but it should be blue. And, you know, to your point, not everybody's, not everybody should be an expert. Some people should just (laughs) relax and maybe watch a movie. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, yeah, be the audience. Not everybody needs to be You didn't do that? Uh, what uh, no, I did it as well and I was wrong about everything. Oh, that's interesting. Well, look, here's a here's a psychological perspective on the election like in addition to everything else that's going on. There are so few occasions in contemporary American life where we have what psychologists would call joint attention, which like I'm looking at the same thing that you're looking at at the exact same time. It's actually how infants learn how to speak, right? Like how they acquire language in part. It's that like your mommy looks at a cup and you look at the cup and the mommy points at the cup and you're looking at the cup and she's looking at the cup and the mommy says, cup, see the cup, right? So moments of joint attention are rare because like we live in this, you know, asynchronous world. Like I watched this TED talk, but I watched it at a different time that you watched it. And I streamed The Office last night at 10, but you saw this episode four years ago. And I I do think that actually the joint attention that happened uh, on election night and the night before the election and the night after the election and like it's still going on. I don't know, in some ways it's kind of, I know we're a divided nation, but at least we are all looking at the same thing. I think that's kind of, remember when people used to watch the Charlie Brown like Halloween special and because it only aired at like, 8 p.m. Eastern time on the network that like carried it. And it was like, everybody watched it at the same time. I think we lose something when uh, we don't do anything at the same time anymore. Yeah, that's a good point. Like, remember, like when we were kids, to your point about Charlie Brown, it's like every Tuesday, all my friends would watch Happy Days and Laverne and Shirley. And then you get on the bus and like, can't believe what the Fonz did yesterday. And 
Uh, now that never happens. It, it never happens happens. a little bit. Like we're all roughly watching the Netflix series Queen's Gambit, or we all roughly watched, you know, Game Tiger King at the same time. But what do you think it does to society when we lose those kind of um, uh, uh, when we lose the moments. kind of coherence? Yeah. Yeah, I, I do think that um, there's a negative side of like everybody just being on their own schedule. Right. I also don't have a solution for this. Right. Like it's very hard to go back. You know, like it's very hard to like put Charlie Brown's Halloween special in the vault and only air it at this one time. And it's never going to happen. But I think it's one of the things that brings, you know, a lot of joy. Right. They're, they're like, what did the Fonz do? Like, oh, my gosh, like I can't believe Linus was I, every time I see that, like, uh, like there is something about all of us doing our own thing in every way, right? Like now we have like infinite personalization, right? Like I'm going to order my pizza this way and I'm going to like, you know, watch this on Netflix. So there's obviously an upside to that, but there is a downside. I think, I don't want to say that this is why our society is so fragmented, but um, it certainly doesn't contribute to a sense of community. Right, although I guess we become more diverse in the knowledge we have and that diversity could mingle with each other to create newer or more original ideas. Yeah, that's. I think that's one of the upsides, right? You're like, oh, you know, and also people can find their niche. Like, yeah. you know, you, you happen to want to hang out with the people who are like really into like this kind of Sudoku puzzle and like, you know, you, you find this like micro community. So it's not horrible, but um, like, what do you lose when everyone is local, right? I don't know if you read Bowling Alone, and this no. kind of stretch it. Have you heard of Bowling Alone? Yeah, I've heard of it. I've never read it. It's um, it's this like sociological perspective. So bowling, I mean, it's now published years ago. I mean, I don't know, maybe 20 years ago. But it, would, it made the comment that, you know, Americans used to bowl in leagues, right? In teams. And it was actually at one point, like the number one thing that families did was like, be on a bowling team. Like you see it in like 1950s movies and you have your own bowling ball with your like name on it. And then there was a trend from leagues to bowling alone. And people would just, you know, they, they no longer were in part of a group. And there were all these other trends that you could track over decades that collectively suggested that we are, we're kind of like living lives that are just separate um, and uncoordinated from each other. Like the opposite of living in a village where like everyone's interdependent. You always bake your bread at the town oven because there's only one oven. Like everybody sees each other there and you're all more or less eating the same kind of bread. And so it's it's a historical trend probably that goes way back. And like you said, there's like upsides to that. And maybe it's also inevitable, but there is something, um, like I walk around my, my block and I realize like I literally know except for one person, nobody on my block. And I probably will never know anybody on my block. I have no idea what they do. I'm sure what they do is different from what I do. It's just like being very, you know, separate from everyone. And yet you're in an urban area, you're in a city. So like right yeah. now, I'm recording this from not an urban area, and Florida, I do know right? the people on famously. the block. Yes, famously in Florida. I do know the people on the block after just being here a month. And how did you get to know them? Knocking on their door. You like literally were like, hi, I'm James. I just moved yeah. in. There was one time at one in the morning, the neighbors, it seemed like they were having a party. There was a lot of loud noise. So I said to my wife, Robin, I said, Let's go over there. And she said, no, 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 it's one in the morning. We'll go the next day. And I'm like, no, no, no. It's kind of like a Latin culture around here. This is how you do it. We'll just go over and, and knock on the door. It's one in the morning. And so we did, and they became good friends, and then they introduced us to their friends, and 
everybody's very friendly and I don't know, it's very different from New York City. There's really nothing preventing me from doing that, right? Like I could do No, that. but people don't do it in cities. I never did it in the city. Oh, really? Interestingly, so you think it's more of a suburban phenomenon? I don't know. I don't know because... Because I don't think they do that in the suburbs very much either. Yeah, I don't know if this is where I'm at is considered a suburb either. I don't know how to define it. It's like it's like a self-enclosed island. Oh, so people yeah, lived here for like 30 or 40 years and they're not aimed towards a city. Yeah. Well, my husband's very into doing the sort of thing that you do. Like he's really into like knowing all the neighbors and we even had a block party like a few, well, now it's more than a few years ago, but I remember thinking like, God, I don't want to organize a block party, but I went along. It was a good sport. I'm and, and did you enjoy married. it? Uh, it was kind of stressful. It was like in the autumn. So it was uh, like this time of year. And this is the time of year for the um, Harvest Moon Festival. Have you ever heard of this tradition? No. It's very Asian. So many Asian cultures keep the lunar calendar, not the solar calendar. And so anyway, in this tradition, broadly speaking, like the moon in the autumn can also be like very big and yellow, like a big egg yolk. And so there are all these traditions around like the first full moon at this part of the year. So I decided to not only have a block party, but to have like an autumn moon festival party to acquaint my very non-Asian neighbors with like some element of my cultural heritage. And I had to like make Chinese food for everyone. It was like very stressful actually. But it was okay. That sounds very stressful. And then we, did you have to be social on top of that? Yeah. And, you know, even though I, I usually just took this personality test because I have this class of undergraduates and I have a rule, which is like anything my undergraduates have to do for homework, I also have to do for homework. So I wanted to teach them about personality and I asked them to like take a personality test. And then, of course, I had to take it. And I literally got the highest possible score for extroversion so five out of five. But I don't know whether like somehow this fails to capture the fact that I don't really want to give parties ever. And I don't really enjoy being at them either. Maybe that wasn't on the test. Let me ask you this. Like if you spend a certain amount of time in a social situation, do you find that you lose energy faster over time or do you gain more energy over time? Like does socializing give you more energy or less energy? Okay, so I have like a pretty deep answer to this. Like I gave you the tip of the iceberg, which is I can just answer your question. But like personality itself has been debated for like about 60 years. Like what is it really? And so my tip of the iceberg answer is it depends, right? Like so oftentimes, like after this conversation, I think I'll have more energy. It's a one-on-one -on -one conversation um, and it has a beginning and an end. Like I know it's an hour, so like it doesn't have this. Oh, we're going for more than an hour here. You're like, I'm. You're gonna be here all day. You're like, oh, did you not get the email? You're gonna. Be okay, parties. I think generally, I find them to be energy subtracting, and it's in part because they have no end term. Like there's no terminus, and also it's because like the conversations are not always one on one, and they're not always to me like that interesting. It's like I really don't like chit chat. So that's my tip of the iceberg answer. There's a lot of the iceberg that's underneath because like this debate about like what it means to have a personality characteristic like grit or extroversion uh, like has been hotly debated. Like really it's even called like a war. Sometimes we call it like the war between the situation and the person in psychology. So there's a deeper answer. So what's the answer there? Like do people have grit? Because, you know, people have different personalities in different contexts, right? So do people who have grit in their career have grit in family life or, you know, or at parties? And is grit related to extroversion or introversion? 
well, grit is not highly related to extroversion or introversion. Like there are gritty introverts and there are gritty extroverts and they're hardly related at all, actually. Um, it's more related to conscientiousness, right? So people who are gritty tend to be like pretty disciplined and um, good at regulating their emotion. And they tend to be just like industrious people who are punctual and orderly on average, right? Like it's not a perfect correlation, but there's some... But, but really, what is personality? So the debate centers on the following. You know, we all have an intuition. Like, like if you describe to me, like, Stephen Dubner, or, you, you know, I describe you to my husband, which I did. I can characterize you. I'm like, oh, he's really smart. Like, you know, I could tell us like his brain like just works fast. So it's sort of like, but it's also kind of goes wherever it wants to. So, right, like, so I, I, I fooled say, you. I, my, I'm good at fooling people into that. <laughs> well, that would be my appraisal of what you are. So uh, that may not be accurate, but I can make these like, more or less sweeping statements, right? Like, oh, you know, so you might describe somebody else to a friend as like, oh, you know, they're very talkative or like, oh, they're very self-confident. So those are personality characteristics, right? And it makes sense to say that like people have certain personality characteristics, but the war or the debate centered on the following irrefutable fact, which is that if you take the same person uh, who you would say, oh yeah, that's a pretty talkative person, right? Or, you know, this person's pretty gritty. And then you just watch them over like, you know, the 24 hours of their day, the 168 hours of their week. If you look at them over any time period, you see that there's a lot of variability in their behavior. And one of the most important books that was ever written in psychology was published in 1968 by Walter Mischel. He said that if you really look at the data, the consistency of people's behavior across situations is quite low. So he said like the correlation between, you know, James's behavior at the, you know, neighborhood party compared to James's behavior, like, you know, at the dinner table, it's maybe a maximum of 0.3, right? Whereas the highest correlation would be one, and you would expect it to be much closer to one. And the debate centered on whether we really actually even have such a thing as a personality or whether there's enormous influence of the situation and that we're basically making mistakes when we say like, oh, this person's gritty or this person is extroverted. So that's the crux of the debate. I think. So two questions. One is, so in general, it's hard to follow someone around 24 hours to see them yes, in different in situations. General, like hard. you see your coworkers pretty much when you're co-working, you see your tennis club, you know, colleagues when you're playing tennis. But during this pandemic and economic lockdown, we saw people in two different situations. One was pre-lockdown where they had their normal daily lives. And then post-lockdown where they had kind of this societal stress that everyone had, but also everybody was working differently. They were working remotely. They were dealing with people in different ways. Did you find yourself noticing different people like, oh, I've never seen this side of this person or or whatever? Did you see a lot of personality changes? Yeah, that's an astute observation, right? Because in a way it was like a natural experiment because you got to see people in two very different situations. Um, I think in a way that even though that would have been like the perfect natural experiment, and then maybe I would have been able to observe like big differences in people's behavior. I mean, you could also say like, what is this person like under low stress versus high stress? Like in, in sports, it's often like a clutch, right? Like there's playing when like the bases are loaded and you have like two strikes and like, it's different than like, oh, you know, you just go to bat and you're the first person in the game. So you could you could have said that that would have happened in the pandemic. I think one of the challenges in the pandemic is that we're all in this very constrained situation when we're interacting for the most part, right? Which is like we're on like Zoom calls, right? And then, you know, the person's got like a two square foot like area where they're sitting. And then 
they're like looking and what like you, you can't see their body language. Like, you know, also everything is pre-scripted when you're on Zoom calls. Like people don't just like randomly get together on Zoom. It's like you have a meeting. So I would say that even though in theory I should have been able to observe a lot of pre-post um, or pre-mid pandemic uh, differences, it's just like it's really, you know, constrained for this other reason. But I guess like on Twitter, though, it's a little more asynchronous, right? They're not coordinating to be on a Zoom call. They're just mm. getting on Twitter, reading some stuff from the same people they're used to reading from, and then reacting. You could kind of see where there differences. were- Yeah, reactions. I'm sure there are differences. That would sort of, But I don't need the pandemic, right? Because there are other research studies that have just simply asked, like the same psychologist, Walter Michel, who, who really was like- one of the greatest psychologists to ever live, and he lived into his 90s. He uh, did this study at a summer camp called Widico, and um, he uh, had this hypothesis after he wrote Personality and Assessment. He thought, let me you know, study this myself, because really when he wrote that book, it was just a review of all the research that had been done up to like 1968. So he observed of these teenagers at this summer camp, and I think they may have been like at-risk youth, but they... Uh, displayed aggressive behavior that was different across different situations. And the most important insight that uh, Walter came to, which I think still stands and is really interesting, is that it's not that like, oh, you know, some people are more aggressive, some people are less aggressive. And it's not just that like people tend to be more aggressive when they're around this like mean nurse and they tend not to be aggressive in the dining hall or what. It wasn't quite that either because that would have been like, you know, is the, does the person matter? No, the situation matters. It was neither. It's actually a little more complicated, which is that if you take an individual camper, like a young James, right, who's at this camp, that James, if you follow James around for 24 hours, which they essentially did in this study. I mean, they did just like basically follow these kids around like to all their different situations. And then probably with a clipboard, like record, like how aggressive are they right now in this situation? That young James would be like, characteristically aggressive in certain of his life situations, but not others. And across time, it was consistent. So it wasn't random. It's like, well, James really doesn't like this nurse. Every time James is around this nurse, he's a pain in the ass. But he's never aggressive around, you know, these three friends. But he's sort of in between when he's in the dining hall. It's that there was consistency. He called them these, like, situation behavior signatures that, like, you would sign your name, as it were, like, the same every time, but your signature would be different from my signature. So it wasn't just that, like, oh, there's personality, and it wasn't just that, oh, no, the situation matters more. It was that there were these, like, person-situation interactions, as he put it, but, like, it's that we have these signatures and that that's really what the locus of personality is. So when you ask me, like, oh, Angela, are you gritty? You know, I think what Walter Michelle might want to say, like, in what circumstances are you consistently gritty? And in what circumstances are you consistently not gritty? I wonder, though, like the way physics sort of tries to understand things by boiling down to subcomponents, like in order to understand how materials work, you have to understand how compounds work, you have to understand how atoms work and so on. I wonder if there's maybe there is some consistent factor in, instead of trying to measure aggressiveness, which is not consistent. I wonder if someone's feeling of status is consistent and that leads to different aggression in different contexts. Yeah, so you anticipated what Walter did next, right? So he came up with this theory of personality who is like, there's the kind of the overt behavior that you can observe, right? But that's not really what you're interested in. You're interested in the underlying machinery that gives rise to like, why is this kid aggressive with the nurse and not with their friends? Like maybe they're threatened by the nurse, right? So really like what's going on underneath the surface is that this kid is sensitive to authority figures 
who, you know, threatened their ego or something. I'm just totally making this up. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he called these like the underlying like cognitive effective, you know, person units. I mean, I'll, I'll tell you, it didn't exactly go viral. Like it wasn't, I don't know, it was simple enough for people to like latch onto and then just start repeating. But I do think you're right that like underlying these signatures must be something, right? And and as examples of this, you'd be like, you know, say you have a schema, like, you know, a way of understanding the world, like that could be one thing. Say you have a habit, like there must be reasons why we see this consistency in certain situations. And I think that's actually where modern psychology is today, which is to understand, you know, what lies beneath the surface of these like, you know, behaviors that we can observe. So, you know, applying it to grit, which you have various ways of understanding it in the book, Grit, but let's say it's, you know, a combination of passion and perseverance that forces you through the the ups and downs of things you love doing. And I'm going to make this up, but would you say the end goal of Grit is some type of success? Or you, you talk about life satisfaction in the book, but what's the end result of having Grit? What's the metric you want? Mm, it's really interesting. I think that when you think of, uh, or when I think of the people who exemplify really long-term passion and perseverance, um, I don't think that they would say that the end goal is happiness, which many philosophers have said, like, it must be the end goal of everything. At least it doesn't come out of their mouths that way. They're not like, oh, I'm doing all this so I can be happy, which um, has like an emotional quality, like the very word happy um, has something about like emotion and positive emotion. And I don't think a lot of these paragons of grit are necessarily happy in, or like in a positive emotional state, like most of the time, certainly not all the time. I think you could say like, oh, is it achievement? Are they not interested in happiness in life, but are they interested in achievement? Um, I think that's partly right. But I think the most accurate description of the motivational machinery of these people that I really admire and also study is that they have a taste for improvement. Like they have a taste for progress. Like Stephen and I had Gabrielle Hamilton, the chef of Prune in New York City on our podcast. And, you know, she describes like as soon as she was able to do something, right? Like as soon as brunch was going fine. And then she just ended up kind of being in a kind of like automatic mode of like slicing English muffins and like putting them in the toaster and doing things like to the point where everybody was super happy. She would just set these almost arbitrary goals. Like this time I'm going to get through service. I'm going to do everything. And there can be no crumbs like, uh, you know, anywhere like that, you know, this time I'm going to do it. And then like, I'm going to do it. And, and there's this taste for progress. Like there's a taste for forward motion And I don't think that's the same as achievement because achievement for most people is like a destination. But like Arthur Ashe, the tennis star, um, among others said, you know, like it's a journey, not a destination. But I really do think there's something about their mindset, which is like they just always want to be moving forward. I have to say... Airbnb has changed my life. I just love staying in Airbnbs. Like in about a month, I'm going to Cocoa Beach, which is right next to Cape Canaveral. I'm going to watch some rocket launches. I'm going to, of course, be staying in a very nice Airbnb on the beach. And it's just such a great experience. Like the whole world is available to us now because of Airbnb. But whenever I'm at an Airbnb, 
I always realized, you know, I the home that I left to come to this Airbnb, I could be making money on that right now by hosting and and being an Airbnb myself. So, and I've known people, I had a friend who basically, you know, made a living from turning his home into an Airbnb. So if you have a home, but you're not always at home, you do have an Airbnb there. And it's an e- it can easily fit into your lifestyle and it's a great way to earn some money. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. The famous Abraham Lincoln quote says, good things come to those who wait. I wonder, did he really say that? Jay, did he really say that? Can you look that up? Regardless of who said it, that's only part of the quote. The full quote is, good things come to those who wait, but only the things left by those who hustle. Well, if you're a business owner and want the best people on your team, the same applies. And listen, I've interviewed 1,500 people now and a lot of entrepreneurs. I can safely say the one thing consistent among all entrepreneurs and CEOs, the the successful ones, is that it's all about the people you surround yourself. You, if you hire well, you're going to have a great business. And, you know, thankfully, ZipRecruiter puts the hustle in your hiring. So you find qualified candidates fast. This is so important, and I, I want you to try it. You could try it as a potential employer or employee. You could try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter's smart technology finds top talent for your roles right away. Immediately after you post your job, if you're hiring, ZipRecruiter's matching technology starts showing you qualified people for it. And I will tell you that I signed up on ZipRecruiter as a potential employee. You know, I just wanted to see how it works. And right away, it started matching me with really amazing potential employers. So give it a try at ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Let ZipRecruiter give you the hiring hustle you need. See why four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to ZipRecruiter.com slash James to try it for free. Again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. And this is where it intersects a little to, we discussed last time, the 10,000 hour rule from Anders Ericsson, because in order to put in 10,000 hours of deliberate learning, you have to be willing to, to fail a lot. And you also have to be willing to put in 10,000 hours give or take, you know, a few or thousand more. hours. Most yeah. people, I think, actually are putting in many. 10,000 hours is over a decade usually, right? Three to four hours a day, you know, more or less, you know, you do the math and it's like about 10. But people who are really, really dedicated uh, to what they do often spend, of course, more than a decade doing what they do. So anyway, it can be longer than that. I wonder if, so obviously, again, having this combination of passion and perseverance, i.e. grit, helps with that deliberate learning because it kind of... You say deliberate learning, by the way, James. I think it's a really interesting turn of phrase because, of course, Anders always said practice, but like, do you, is that, that must be intentional that you say the words deliberate learning. Well, I sort of feel like practice is not, is, is the same as doing. Mm. So it's just like whether you're doing it or not, I'm not separating out the practice from the doing. So even doing is practice because you still look back on how you did and get feedback or you know, what he calls practice, you're still looking back and, and doing the same thing. Do you think these are thing. like just interchangeable or do you have a preference for saying deliberate learning? I think I have a preference for saying deliberate learning because I'm not so sure 
practice implies some kind of repetition, I think. Mm -hmm. And take the case of Gabrielle from Prune, the chef mm -hmm. from Prune. Is it always practice when she says, oh, I'm going to have no crumbs? No, it's more like she's setting an experiment for herself and she's going to learn from it. It's not necessarily the traditional thing, like let's just keep practicing flipping pancakes and we'll get better at it. Practice seems to have more to do with repetition. I suspect learning might happen faster without repetition, but with more experimenting. So the more uh, experiments she did, she probably learned faster than just simply repeating the same thing over and over. Okay, so I think this is just a question of connotation, right? So like the word practice to you connotes a kind of like rote repetition without experimentation. Yeah, um, like I'm going to practice the scales on the piano. Yeah, like, well, do it over again, do it over again, do it over again. I think the answer is both, though, because in deliberate practice, as Anders called it, but, you know, I think also in your mental model of deliberate learning, there is repetition. I mean, one of the things about the practice that Anders observed experts do is that I was listening to, I think, like David Chang, uh, and I, I actually really like his podcast. And he was saying that his favorite recipe was this recipe from some, I don't know, I didn't recognize him, some like great French chef. And the recipe was literally just like make the turbot every day for six months, right? And one of the things that experts do is they do repeat. So um, Julie Andrews has also said this of um, when she was a young performer, what accelerated her development the most is that when you're on Broadway, you are doing the same thing over and over again. And I think the reason why that is so important, I'm not saying do it mindlessly and not saying that like there's just some magic only in the repetition, but like, you know, when I give a talk, oftentimes like I'm teaching a class, undergraduate class, and I know immediately after the class, like what I got wrong, like the timing is wrong. I probably should break this into two classes. Like, you know, this assignment didn't work. Okay, this example didn't work or I needed another example. But the problem is, is that like, I won't be able to repeat this performance for a year right, which is the next time I teach this class in this course to another group of students. And what I really need is what Julie Andrews had, which is like, I need repetition. I was like, okay, teach that exact class, but do it tomorrow night and then do it better. Okay, now you know it. So I think that Andres' observation that there is repetition is important, but also you're right, there needs to be experimentation because what you're supposed to do with each rep is to learn and to, in a sort of, you know, sometimes very subtle way, experiment. Right. So you could see like, oh, what if I had paused more in this part of the talk because people need to absorb something? Or what if I had asked a question into the audience after 10 minutes just to kind of wake them up a little bit out of their cell phones? Yeah, or and you whatever. need to try it. And then you need to try it again. And that's why you need to make that turbot every night for six months. Because if you make the turbot and then you switch to chicken and then you decide to make some eggs and then, you know, six months later you make another turbot, like you're not going to learn as much. So I, I do think there's something important about the repetition, but also, you know, that's why he called it deliberate practice. He didn't just say practice. And I think that's one of the big misunderstandings of this work is that people think that if you do anything for 10,000 hours, like a miracle happens and then you're just like really great, but you could just be entirely mediocre. I, you probably won't be terrible after 10,000 hours, but you likely won't be great unless you do the other things that he talked about. I don't know, like look at any repetitive kind of sport, like let's say golf. If someone plays golf for 10,000 hours but doesn't have a coach, isn't focused on getting better, just likes going out and playing with their friends, they're really not going to get better after 20 years of playing because they're just going to have their same bad habits. And if anything, they're going to cement those bad habits in because they're not going to get feedback. So in that sense, repetition hurts. Yeah, he would agree 100%, right? And in fact, in his later writings, Anders would say that definitionally, because I think his idea of deliberate practice evolved 
I mean, as it should have, right? But it evolved over the decades of his career and it got sharper and sharper. And one of the things that he spoke a lot about at the end of, of his research career was that a coach is almost always, I think he would even make it definitional. So for example, if I were going to just like try to be a better podcast guest or whatever, like, and I, you know, and I just, you know, on my own tried to figure it out and, you know, thought about it, like that would be vastly different than if I were like, James, make me better. Like, you know, let's meet, you can help me, you know, identify goals and then give me feedback. So I think the idea of the intentionality and the support, right, that like, you know, even maybe Roger Bannister didn't fully coach himself to the four minute mile, even though that's what he said in his autobiography. But, you know, this is interesting, though, about the distinction Anders makes between practice and, let's say, learning. I feel with Anders' work, and this is a little different than the end goal of having grit. I feel with Anders' work, it really is about there's a metric of improvement so you can measure yourself all the time. And it's a very established metric. So in golf, it's your golf score. In memorizing numbers, it's the number of numbers you can memorize. Whereas let's say giving a talk or doing a podcast, yes, there's a notion that one person is better than another, um, like with giving a talk or at, to a class, but there's no metric for measuring that. It's just like you you feel like at the end of the class, oh, I didn't really do as well as I would have liked. And I don't think Anders, and this is all credit to him, like I love mm-hmm. all his stuff. I don't think he responds well to systems without a metric of understanding what improvement is. No, I mean, I can say this. I mean, unfortunately, he's not... Let's trash him now that he's dead. ...able to defend no, himself. But but I'll tell you this, but look, he was nothing if not honest, right? And he never tired of conversations like these. So I, I think in a way, you know, Anders would be happy that we're having this conversation. I had a grant that I was so excited about. I decided that this idea of deliberate practice, or as you call it, like deliberate learning, was so common sense and so powerful and yet totally absent from like anything in K through 12 education, right? It's not like elementary school looks like deliberate practice or that like professional development for teachers looks like deliberate practice. Like the idea of this intentionality of like repetition with experimentation with like, you know, you have a coach or a mentor, like, you know, it's just totally absent. So got this grant. I was like, I'm going to introduce deliberate practice into K-12 education. Andres, of course, was like the quarterback on the team, right? He was like there. And I had all these other like a half dozen uh, world-class scientists. And we met every week for at least an hour. And we didn't get anywhere in part because um, Andres was really insistent that anything that we studied had to have a really clear metric for performance. So it wasn't like golf, right? Like when you, even when you have like a sixth grader and you're like, hey, you know, do they know their math better? Like, it turns out that like, I was like, okay, well, can't we take their like test scores? And like, Anders would be like, yeah, but like, does that meet the criterion? And like, so he had very high standards for what the metric of excellence was. And um, we never achieved that metric or we never got to that high watermark. And why would the metric be grades? Because grades are subjective, right? So, like, your teacher gives you a grade, but, like, you know, what does that mean? Yeah, I guess, uh, what about what about if you limited it to, like, you know, math and science and tests that were more objective? Yeah, I thought that, like, that would be the solution, right? That you could have standardized tests of mathematics. And, like, you know, one practical thing was that, like, students are not taking them. Like, you know, they're not you know, students take them once a year, right? So you can't really assay this. And then even I think Andres was like, how do we know they're valid, right? I mean, he was nothing if not 
like an epistemological doubter. So that's why I think when he studied chess players or to some extent musicians, although you could argue that music is like much harder to measure in the quality of them. Well, like he a, would measure it by the career. Yeah, they have a recording contract, et cetera. Mm-hmm. So, you know, maybe I didn't have enough grit to stick with it, but I wasn't optimistic that we were going to, after like three years of working on this project, it's like after three years of like, weekly video calls and like many emails. I was like, you know, I don't think this is going anywhere. So I ended the project. Well, okay. So that's going to lead to another question in a second. But the last conversation I had with Anders was about comedy. Like where's the relationship between Mm, the 10,000 hour rule and getting better at something performance related, like teaching a class or like doing a comedy. And the back and forth was all about the metric. Like how do you is it the laughs per minute? Is it the career? Is it, you know, how much money someone's making? Uh, uh, it was hard to figure out the metric. And that's, and you never got past that part of the conversation. Never got past it. And so I was getting really frustrated. Like, so then I started thinking, well, is there a notion of borrowing hours from other industries? So I've done 10,000 hours of public speaking, say, you know, or, or preparing for public talks. So can I borrow from those hours? But I couldn't, you know, and I was talking to Maria Konnikova about this in terms of her poker, like, did her work on her PhD help her? Did she borrow hours from that to be disciplined about studying poker? And so I started thinking in terms of borrowing hours, but then I started thinking more in terms of skipping hours by experimenting. And I think that was more fruitful for me, at least in that domain. Mm, interesting. And, you know, chess might be a combination. Like you practice one set of ideas over and over again, But then also, if you have your own point of view on a particular type of chess position and you're good enough that that point of view is relevant, then experimenting with new points of view is often a way to skip hours. But I called it skipping hours. Mm. He might just say that that was a natural outcome of that level of putting in that many hours. I think he might just say like, oh, you're talking about exactly what I'm talking about, right? Because there has to be this like experimentation. I mean, it is also true that I think the, the more excellent you become at something, you know, these experiments are not they're quite nuanced. I mean, maybe I'm wrong, but like, you know, and I'm not saying there's not creativity. And by the way, I do think that like creativity and deliberate practice may be different. Mm-hmm. Like many chefs will say, and many athletes even say, like you can deliberate practice like your technique. Like that's where deliberate practice is really helpful. But like the idea for a new dish is like maybe not going to come out of like a deliberate practice process of like these incremental refinements. So I don't want to say that you're wrong if you're saying like, hey, there there are limits to this like idea. And I do think creativity is probably the biggest one, right? Like if a comedian is going to come up with new jokes, there's something deliberate practice-y about it. And there's certainly a lot of deliberate practice. And like once you have an idea, refining it, right? But like, I don't know that the origin of the new joke is like going to be fully explained by deliberate practice. Yeah. And, and so this is why I like the model of grit. So this passion plus perseverance, the perseverance sort of implies there's going to be moments of no happiness, like the opposite of happiness. Otherwise you wouldn't need to persevere because you persevere because you're unhappy sometimes. Like a chef makes a dish and everyone hates it and they go home thinking, that's it. I'm going to quit being a chef. But then the next morning they wake up and they're like, oh, I can't wait to get back to the restaurant. So that's, I think it's about a higher order goal. If you ask the question, like, why? Like, why do they come back? I mean, I, like, think of a few bad days I've had in the last month or two where I'm like, oh, I can't believe I botched it. Like, what was I thinking, right? And, like, I I have a higher order goal. If I don't have, like, why did I botch that 
talk. Well, it wasn't like I meant to. But if you ask me, like, why did you keep trying? Like, why didn't you just, like, take an easier path afterwards? Like, not like, it's because I had a higher order goal. That talk was just so that I could understand a principle better, right? And that I think the perseverance is from having something that you care about. And and actually, like, typically it's something that's identity relevant. It's like part of, like, who you are, like your deepest values. And I think the perseverance comes from realizing that, like, it's seeing the bigger picture, right? Like, you know, Frankel, Victor Frankel would say, like, you know, as long as you have a why, you can get through, like, any how or some, you know, I'm botching yeah. uh, Frankel. But, yeah, I think it's having a higher order goal or purpose that gives meaning um, and gives you resilience, actually, right? Because there's a kind of bouncing back and realizing that, like, you know, you, you can find another path to the same goal. So let's say you found yourself lacking grit. Like, right now... And and you talk about this in your book, but this is a particularly important question right now. So many people have lost their jobs, lost their careers, don't know what to do next. There's a lot of uncertainty in the world, so you kind of have nothing to hang your hat on. But you want to find your passion and build perseverance at it and get good at it and change your life for the better. Like, what's a good way now, today, regardless of age? I'm, I'm making a very big menu order here. Yeah, I was like, this is a big one. This is like hard. But this is the goal of, yeah. of knowing about grit is that I could then have more of it. Right. I think to me, you know, grit is, I, I know this metaphor never works, but I'm just going to say it now. Like it's a phenotype. I guess it doesn't work because unless you understand genotypes, I was a bio major. So I'm like, oh, right. It's like a phenotype as opposed to a genotype. But anyway, it's like what emerges from a person when lots of things are going in a certain way. And because of that, if you ask me like, how does this person get grittier? The answer is always that it depends, right? Like, it depends on what's the reason why they're not gritty, right? Like, I think for some people, but not everyone, it might be because they have a pessimistic, like, helpless response to adversity, right? They're just like, well, you know, nothing I can do, right? Okay, but that may not be another person's problem. That other person may be, like, pretty optimistic, but they just don't have, like, a disciplined habit of deliberate practice. Like, they never ask for feedback. Like, they, you know, they they don't set clear performance goals of, like, what they're trying to do. They don't do any repetition or experimentation. Okay, that's a different problem. What if you have somebody who has a lot of discipline, they do a lot of practice, they're, they're pretty resilient, but they don't really have anything that they're interested in, in the obsessive way, honestly, that I think great stand-up comedians and scientists and investors all have. I mean, there's something about, like, you know, when I wake up in the morning, as I often do, like in the middle of the night, like at four in the morning, my brain is like working on what I was working on yesterday. It's like just cruising along, like, you know what? I actually think that needs to be two paragraphs, not one. But just, and if I were only a nine to five thinker, like, I don't think I would be a very good psychologist. So maybe that's the problem. And they haven't like developed an interest that's deep enough that like they can kind of, you know, not get bored of it. And then there are more problems than that. But I guess the prescription depends on the problem. Yeah, so, but let's say obsession's important and critical and you're not used to it. Like, let's say you lost the muscle to be obsessive about something because you've been 30 years as a, uh, I don't know, low-level employee somewhere for General Motors and you just, you stop being obsessive about things. Yeah, I mean, if you ever were, right? If you were like a, I don't know. Here's a little um, reflection I find really useful. I remember some things very well. Like, for example, I think I remember almost everything I've eaten. Or certainly there was a time I was, like, really interested in food. I thought I might become a chef. And, like, I could tell you, like, every detail of, like, oh, yeah, and that stir-fry only used half an onion. And then, like, 
Like, that's something that came easily and without effort. Then there were other things like historical facts, like the number of Supreme Court justices or like, you know, when the Constitution was like, like OPEC, like who was in, like, I, I didn't know any of those things and I couldn't retain them. So if you want to understand your own interests better, one of the things that you could ask yourself are like, what are those things that I find like just stick in my brain without even effort? Like I remember every detail, like I retain it all. Like, you know, it's not even like I'm trying. And like what things go right through me, like water through a sieve. And I think that might give you a clue because in addition to food, I almost never forget anything that I read in psychology. Like I read it and it's like, Yep, it's there. It's in the card catalog, right? And they can remember like, oh yeah, it's on the top right hand of this, you know, I think it was on page 372, like, and I think there was a table. And I think there were like, you know, the variables were that. Like, I remember that. And I think it's because in those moments where I'm reading psychology papers, I am so interested, you know, like the aperture of my mind is open to its fullest radius and everything comes in. So there's two techniques there. There's one is ask yourself, what things can you recall that everyone else says, how did you remember that? That might be a compass to where it's pointing towards what you're interested in. Or try lots of things, keep trying different things until there's something where your memory is like superb on on it. Even the next day, you remember every detail. Yeah, I mean, experimentation. And I know, God, you know, James, something about our conversations, I always feel like, and then they end. And then I have, like, I, I know this is the end of this conversation. I'll say like, yeah, in addition to just, introspecting and thinking like, oh yeah, that's interesting that I seem to pay attention to these things more, seem to remember them more. Experimentation really is key because it is not forecastable, you know, what you will begin to like a lot. And it's not forecastable based on like ex-ante first principles. You know, you can't just say to yourself like, well, I like people and, you know, I want to make some money, so maybe I should be in sales. I mean, you can say that to give you the hypothesis that you should be in sales. And then you could test the hypothesis by being in sales. But there's so many trivial aspects of being in sales that are either going to rub you the right way or collectively rub you the wrong way that you have to experiment. Yeah, I always say you can't think yourself to a passion. You have to, you have to do Try things. Try it, like food. So we're going to have to do a part three. Do you mind doing a part three? Because we haven't <laughs> even gotten to the perseverance We really part. are going to take 10,000. We're going to do the 10,000 hour interview. And then quitting, I, I want to understand a little bit more from the grit point of view. And yeah, we can do that. Questions. Can we do it after my class ends? Because I'm teaching this semester, like two classes. Yeah, yeah. Um, when, when's your class end? At the beginning of December. All right. Well, thanks a lot, Angela, and have fun. And uh, we'll schedule this. But we'll, Jay, let's release these, though, before that. And then we'll, we'll tease the part three. Yep. You have to listen to part three to fully understand. Yeah, it'll be like the trilogy. Yes, exactly. Exactly. 